a lady that I used to go to church with reached out to me a little over a week ago through Facebook. And we don't go to church anymore. We haven't gone to church for probably seven years or so. We went to church together for about three years. And I've seen her since, once or twice. I do construction, so she's, she's actually contacted me a few times for, to look at some projects. Um, but we, we maintain some connection through Facebook. So she reached out, and she listened to some of my podcasts, and she said, she shared a story with me. She said there's a guy at her church who, who is gay and struggles to feel at home in her church or in any church. And she shared a story of his with me. And it was when he was a little kid, like eight years old, and his auntie, his favorite auntie, came to visit from California. And <clears throat> um, she brought her her uh, female friend. And they stayed. It was Saturday. And the little boy, so excited to see her, she always bought, brought him gifts and just lavished him with favor, you know. And... Uh, <clears throat> So then he brought up the question about her going to church with him the next day. And everybody got kind of quiet, and the dad was like, No, no, I don't think she would be that welcome at our church. And the boy was just kind of puzzled, but almost distraught. And at that point, the aunt and her friend got up and left. He ran out after her, found her in their favorite spot. Uh, I think the setting was more like a farm, and they're out in the woods. And she was crying, and he was talking to her, and... And he couldn't understand, the basic point of the story was he couldn't understand why she wouldn't be welcome at church anymore. Now looking back, he understood that she was in a gay relationship. And the, the conservative church that she used to go to with his parents, with him, wouldn't accept her lifestyle. So my friend shared that story and just shared how she is burdened with his condition, with, with his um, lack of acceptance in church and churches in general in her church and also on, on the wider scale how church fails to accept um, the LGBTQ community um, and she just asked she just wanted to have some conversations with me now, you have to have those conversations but I want to have a conversation with you about that today not just about this one particular group but about the church's stance towards people, towards people who are different. And my question is, is there room at the table? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about tables. I'm a carpenter. I've built tables. I've built, I built things out of wood. Jesus was a carpenter. I think this is kind of fun. I think we could have a lot of fun with this conversation. So uh, this is the Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. I am a spiritual director, a teacher of contemplation, and a carpenter, as I've already mentioned. So I just want you to know where I'm coming from. It's kind of my mission statement. Just, I am a Christian, but I'm a contemplative. I'm a spiritual director, which means I walk with people and help them know God. And that's what I'm doing here. I am actually walking in the woods. It's uh, not so early morning, and I can hear the creek pretty pretty strong flow today the woods are mostly cleared of the leaves which are on the ground it's fall actually fairly comfortable temperature I'm bundled up but we're walking 
We're walking together. That's what we do. It's how we learn. That's how we grow. It's what I'm doing. So walk with me in this topic, in this discussion today, is the room at the table. What do I mean? I mean, what, what am I talking about? Is the room at your table? I mean, that's the question. It's not my table. It's not, it's not your table either. It's our table. Like, you have a table. You have a perception of an in-group. You have an idea of who you accept and who you exclude. And that's what I'm talking about. Now, in lieu of this discussion, I just went ahead and looked up the word table in the Bible. I thought it was very interesting. I don't know why, but I was compelled. I was just like, I wonder how the Bible uses this metaphor of table. <clears throat> so I want to kind of go there too. But I want to start by saying, the first thing we can say about table is it's an invitation to share, to share of our goodness with others, right? Like the table represents usually a meal, like something that is very personal. Usually families gather around the table often, but it's also something very personal. You're sharing a personal space, a very intimate space, and you're sharing also of what you have with others. You're giving. It's a giving space. It's a space of invitation. And so who we invite to our table in a broader sense is who we're inviting to partake of the goodness that we have been given, right? We want to draw people in. But how are we drawing people in and who are we drawing in? That's what I'm asking. You have a table in your heart. You have a table in your life. And who are you inviting and who are you casting out? Now, when the Bible talks about tables, it's interesting. Um, one of the first metaphors is... Uh, uh, a temple metaphor. In the temple, in the Old Testament Judaic temple, there was a table. Um, I don't know if it was called the show table. It's spelt S-H-E-W, or the transliteration. Or it was called shoe bread and the shoe table, I think. I don't know how it's pronounced, but this was a table that had actual bread on it. It was for the priests to eat while they were doing their services in the temple. So it was a way for them to have physical sustenance, but it was also a holy thing. Like nobody but the priests could eat of that table. So we see, interestingly enough, that as the priests were going about the duty that only they could do, there was only one tribe, the Levites, that could go into the temple, into most of the parts. There was one part where people could come and offer sacrifices. But the Levites in an inner chamber had this table of bread that they could eat as they were providing spiritual sustenance for the people. And then the Holy of Holies, the most inner chamber, was where God dwelt on the ark, and only one person could go in there once a year. And so you have, kind of from the beginning, in the imagination of the Jewish religion, this idea of separation. Like, only one tribe can go into the inner chamber where there is sustenance. And then in the inner inner chamber, only one person from that tribe, the, the high priest, can go once a year. And so you have this model in the Old Testament of exclusion. I mean, one person once a year can go into the presence of God. Isn't that interesting? Like this idea of table, I think from that is this idea of separation, of very few coming in, right? And yet, you could work that in reverse and say that one person in command of the table is actually bringing out from that table to all people, right? I think this is an interesting metaphor because it's the idea that God invites you in personally. 
like maybe in your heart you are the only person that can enter into the the chamber of your heart the holy of holies where you and god dwell together but from the goodness of that space you bring out from that table good things good things with your inner circle which is like the the second chamber out from the holy of holies which is like the priests only certain people can be in your close circle but even from there there's the wider circle the outmost external chamber where everybody can come and partake of the things you're bringing out from the inside and so i think if you reverse that exclusionary model it actually creates an inclusionary model where yes in the holy of holies in the chamber of your heart where only you and god can dwell from there there's a richness there in your relationship with god right your the interaction there should be you should have an intimate holy chamber in fact i mean the bible says we are the temple of god so it's actually calling forth the metaphor of that Jewish temple. We are the temple, which means we dwell in our inner chamber with God. But the idea is that from out of that inner chamber, we bring good things to all those around us. You may have your smaller circle of people you know really intimately, but that is not where the flow stops. The flow must go further out to the outer court, what in the Jewish temple was the outer court where anybody could come. And there was actually even... A court for the Gentiles there was actually a space and a place made in the temple for those who weren't even Jewish to come and still partake of the goodness of God <laughs> do you see isn't this a beautiful picture like you have your exclusionary personal intimate relationship with God but the out the outflow of that is always to the broadest sense to everyone and the point, I think, is don't hold in your heart an exclusionary stance towards others about God. The God in you should be the God flowing out of you that is welcoming to all people. All people. All people should be welcomed. God has been welcomed into your heart because God has chosen to dwell with you. And why has that taken place? Did you do something right? Did you become holy enough, clean enough, cleansed enough for that to take place? Or is it purely by the grace of God? And I think how we imagine that is how we flow out. How we imagine God flowing into us is how we will imagine God flowing out. If God flows into us by a hard effort because we're grinding it out and we're good enough and we're pure enough and we've worked hard enough and we've kept all the right rules, then how that flows back out of us will be did you keep the right rules in you? Are you good enough to come near my God? Are you good enough? Are you holy enough? Have you done all the right things? Have you done all my right things? And so how we imagine God flowing into us in our inner sanctuary is how we will imagine God flowing back out of us to others. And if our God demands that we exact stringent codes of purity to be that inner temple, we will imagine, we will exact those stringent codes on others in order for them to partake in the God that we partake of and that we dwell with. So it's very important how we imagine this whole process because it's the difference between inclusion and exclusion. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch over to... Um, I think the next table metaphor... <laughs> give me a minute to to um, find my place. Let's see. I'm going to some... Here we go. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the next one I was thinking about, just making sure, is Psalm 23. I like this. This is good. So David, I'll just read kind of more of the verse to get to the one part that I want. Verse 4, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I want to stop there. I want you to get this picture. I think most of the time we imagine God preparing a table for us in the absence of our enemies. We want God to prepare a table for us with only a select few people who we really like, who are the most like us, who affirm us, and who affirm our values. If you're a Republican, you don't want to hang out with Democrats. If you're a conservative, you don't hang out with liberals. If you're a Catholic, you may not want to hang out with Protestants and vice versa. Like, you know, we tend to flock towards uh, similar birds of a feather. (laughs) I just brutalized that metaphor. But listen to what David says. He's talking to God. He's talking about how God is to him. He says that God prepares a table in the presence of his enemies, not in the absence. So, you know, enemy is a very relative word to each person. But the people that you think are the worst, people you would never even want to be around, the people you can't stand, David says God prepares a table for you in their presence. Can you imagine that? And look at the end of that verse 5. God, he says, you've anointed my head with oil. That's an, an idea of blessing in the Jewish concept. But it says, my cup overflows. Okay, so picture this. David's saying, God, like this is all metaphor. David's saying, God is filling his cup so much with blessing that it's flowing out from his cup, which he drinks from, it's flowing out to others. And who are the others in direct proximity to David that are receiving the benefits of this outflowing from the cup of David? His enemies. Do you see that? David's enemies, who God has prepared a table for in the midst of, are benefiting from the flow of God's goodness to David. Because David has, because David sees that God has chosen to put a table for him right in the midst of his enemies. Do you see that picture? God does not choose to isolate us from our, quote, enemies. God wants us to be an overflowing of blessing in the presence of the people we can't even stand. Because God wants us to know that God cares as much about the people we call enemy as he does us. And so God does not prepare a table for you, a table of bounty and blessing and friendship and love in the absence of the people you can't stand. But God calls you to be an outflowing of blessing in the presence of the people you don't even want to hang around. Why? Because God, that is God's heart. That is God's, you think God takes a limited and exclusive stance in the world and says, well, I'm not going to be around that group or that person. No, he doesn't. Because if God did that, he couldn't be around you either. Because you're not good enough. And that's the point. It's not an earned and a worked for kind of invitation and and, and a blessing. God chooses to be present with us despite our efforts towards anything good. And so the reason God prepares a table for you in the midst of who you might claim to be an enemy is because God wants you to understand that you should have no enemies. And the way that your enemies stop being enemies is when you start blessing them. 
and you see that they can be caught up in the goodness of your God just as much as you. Isn't that awesome? Uh, this is interesting. Um, I, I, so this, this next table verse is from Psalm, but it's talking about the Israelites going through the desert. So again, this is a psalm. I don't know if this one was a psalm of David, but again, it's being written long after the fact. But it says, it's talking about the Israelites going through the desert, right, a place of barrenness. And it says, they spoke against God and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And they also said, can he provide bread? Will he provide meat for his people? You know, <clears throat> I think that's very interesting. You know, I, I think it's interesting that they're in a desert. We, like, we go through deserts in life. Sometimes we view the world as a desert, and we view our group or our little clique, our home, our family. We have our in-group, and we view that group as, our, our, as an oasis in the midst of a vast desert. And I think we have this, you know, this is, a, again, the psalmist here is using this as a metaphor. He's saying these, the Israelites are going through a desert, a desolate place, and, and they were asking, can God really be for us? A provision? Can God really set a table of bounty for us in the midst of such a desolate place? <laughs> and the, the answer is yes, because he did. God provided for them in a place where provision seemed impossible. And I think that's just another picture of God. More often, we want God to bring us to a land of bounty, which to us, is, is I think, is, it typifies a place where everything for us is good. Everything is the way we want. Everything fits us and is tuned to us and is comfortable for us. But the reality is that God calls us to a desert. God calls us into places that aren't comfortable and aren't convenient and aren't conducive to what we want. But, and God provides for us there because there we are able to outflow to others in that desert, right? We're called to a desert. We have this inflowing from God that flows out. The reason we're called to a desert is because other people are dying in the desert and they need that outflowing. And Later, I think it's later in the Psalms, but there was this instant, yeah, it is later. It talks about this rock that water poured out of. And actually in the New Testament, it says that Jesus is that rock that flows outward with water. Oh, I'm passing by water right now. This is cool. Can you hear it? So like the metaphor is that God for us, even in what we might, what we might call desert places, desolate places, what we might call wicked places, Right? places that don't share our values and our ideas of God or anything, there is still this rock. Like, water doesn't normally flow from a rock, people. Rock, like, you know, we don't think of that. We think, well, here I am, buy some water. It was a, it was a rock that had no water. Moses struck it with his staff and water flowed. And the New Testament says Jesus is like that. That's Jesus, our living water. He is inside us a deep well that springs forth. Well, what's the point of a well in a desert? It's so that everybody around can be quenched from their parched experience, right? So again, this metaphor of a table in the desert, and even questioning, is this how God wants to prepare a table for us in the midst of this desolate place? Yes. Again, the answer is yes, that God wants you to be a table of his bounty and blessing to others in the midst of the places you would not even expect to be able to have that. Ah, so cool, isn't it? <clears throat> Um, now I jump to the New Testament and I kind of want to pause a bit from just the, the direct scripture reading and like 
Jesus uses the metaphor of a table and a banquet and a feast often, often a wedding feast. I find there's about, I think I found about five or six verses. Some of those were in corollary gospels where maybe they're talking about the same actual events or parables. But Jesus, there were times when Jesus was literally at a table with people and there were times when Jesus was telling stories, parables of, of a table and a feast using this imagery of a wedding feast even. And the reason Jesus uses that imagery of a wedding feast is because there was no bigger celebration in in, in the culture of his time than a wedding feast. Sometimes these wedding feasts would last a week. I mean, it was a big deal. Night after night after night and day after day of feasting and celebration and wine and good food. <clears throat> and so when Jesus likens the kingdom of God to this wedding feast, it is a huge, full-on celebration. Just like food and people and joyous occasion and think of all the noise and people talking and just fellowship and <clears throat> I mean just an amazing party like this is a party of all parties I'm sure you've been to weddings even now weddings are like the best food the best alcohol dancing and just a whole day of just kicking back and having fun right after you get past the boring ceremony <laughs> Right? It's like, okay, we can get through this and we can drink and eat and just have a good time and dance and dance to the night and dance the night away. Like, Jesus uses that metaphor for a reason. But I want to tell you something in all these table metaphors in the, New in the Gospels that Jesus references. He talks about people being invited to the table and he talks about people being cast away from the table. And a lot of times... Christianity has interpreted this whole metaphor, parable of Jesus, these parables, table, table parables, <clears throat> as heaven and hell, as God choosing some for heaven and some for hell, or God sentencing some to hell and inviting others to heaven. You know, some of that's imagined as based on our actions, so I'm not trying to put the impetus only on God, like God just arbitrarily... Although if you're a Calvinist, you probably do think God arbitrarily casts people either place. But my point is, in this table metaphor that Jesus uses, I noticed something. That people who are being chastised in all these parables and stories, even in the literal stories where he's at a table, the people who are being excluded by him, who are being kind of chastised and corrected, are always, guess who? Not the sinful people. Not the irreligious or the unreligious or the wicked or the bad. You know who it is? It's God's people. Oh, and even more specifically, it's God's leaders. It's the religious leaders who are the ones he's chastising. They're the ones that he's saying, you are losing your place at the table of God. It's you. He, uses, he says this directly to the Pharisees, the scribes, in one of, I think it's called the seven woes. He says, you have shut the gates of heaven in people's faces. And you yourself are not entering. This was the dominant point of Jesus' parables about table. He's saying, God's table is meant to be an invitation to all people. It's meant to be, you have a relationship with God which flows out from you to everyone. But you've reversed that flow and you only see it as an invitation for you only. You've made your table an exclusionary place of blessing. 
only for you and the few people you think are the most like you and are good enough. And you are the ones that are losing your place at the table because of that. That is a stark and startling and sobering critique. When Jesus talks about table, he's critiquing God's own people and how they are treating others and leaving them and excluding them out from that table. He's not talking about people who aren't good enough for the table because they're not good enough for God. He's talking about the people who think they're so good and think they have God so much in their pocket that they're excluding everyone else. And he's saying, you're the ones who are about to lose your place. Not because, not because God doesn't think you're good enough or because God hasn't welcomed you. In fact, they already are at the table. That's the point. They're at the table. They're going to lose their place at the table because they are excluding other people from the table. Do you understand the picture? The picture isn't you're not good enough and you need to get out because God, you're too much of a sinner. The, 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 the picture is you are the very ones who are in charge of the table, inviting people into your table of God's blessing and bounty. And you're going to lose your place because you're not inviting other people in. Because you've decided to, to limit who can come in based on how good they are. And you don't realize that you didn't get in because you were good enough either. You didn't make the cut and make the grade, and that's why you're here. There was one time in the gospel stories where Jesus literally turned over tables. Do you remember that story? It was in the temple, in the outer courts in the temple. There were tables set up by money changers, and if you don't know, we probably don't know the history. So... I don't even think this was prescribed in the law of Moses, but the practice began to, to come into place where people were, would come to Jerusalem. This was part of the law. You had to come and you had to pay a temple tax. Well, I think it was once a year. People would come from all different places and they would have different kinds of coins. You know, you can imagine, just like different countries have different coins. And so the money changers had these tables in the outer courts of the temple. And they made a rule that you could not offer foreign money. You had to offer temple money. There was coinage. I believe this is right. There was coinage made just for the temple. But the reason that they made that rule is so that they could charge them an extra fee for that exchange and make more money. And that's what was going on in the temple. And Jesus comes into the temple and turns the tables of the money changers, like flips them up in the air. Can you imagine? Jesus is like, kicking tables left and right and like taking his arm and just just flipping tables up and money is flying everywhere and he's running around can you imagine i'm running around right now if you can picture it he's just like bam kicking bam bam he's throwing tables in the air money's flying everywhere chaos people are probably freaking out going call the guards call the soldiers get this crazy man out of here gotta take off my winter hat i'm getting hot from this expressiveness Can you imagine? And Jesus says, My house, God God has said, My house is a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. One, he's saying, You've used God to exhort undue profit from people. But I think the bigger picture is that they were putting extra... Um, 
hindrances on people coming to God. Like the reason for the temple tax was to support the priests so that they could do their job and offer the sacrifices. It was a whole system meant to help people draw close to God. So like God didn't like set up this arbitrary tax because God thinks he's so hot and so awesome that people need to pay money to see him. God was like, okay, you know, there's a system here that requires a lot of people. And I just want you guys to support those people. Like they're doing a job to help you, to help facilitate you know, it's a, you could look at it the same reason why you pay tuition at college, right? You're learning from someone, you're getting some benefit from someone, and you're going to pay for it. It just helps them, helps you, you know, it's an exchange. But not only had the religious leaders of Jesus' day turned it into a profit-making machine, but it also was a hindrance to people coming to God, and that was the opposite of the point. Jesus turned over the tables. He was so upset about people limiting access to God. That's why. That's why he did it. So I want to ask the question again. Who are you inviting to your table? Is there room at the table? And for who is there room? Are there people you exclude? Are there Do you do you live do you do you live in a religious system that excludes people? That's my question. If you do, that's the very thing that pissed Jesus off the most. Do you understand that? Jesus didn't come to set up a new legal system, a new um, liturgical system of stringent legal requirements for people to come near to God. He came to turn that over. He came to break that system. That's why the veil in the temple was torn in two when he died. It was a symbolic gesture to say, no longer is there a division between you and God. That was, that's the goal of God. That was the goal of God all along. And Jesus finally puts the exclamation point on that sentence of no more separation. There is nothing between you and me. That is God's message for humanity, for all of humanity. And to turn Jesus back into a system of separation of who's good and who's not. To put the, the temple curtain back in place between you and others is not only shameful, it's a direct opposition to everything in the heart of God. <clears throat> God tore the veil of the curtain for you to come in. Who are you to sew that curtain back together and exclude others? The thing that made Jesus the most upset wasn't people's sinfulness or lack of faith or struggle or brokenness. It was religious leaders telling people they weren't good enough to come to God. People who made God's table exclusionary. And I think here's the biggest point of all. Are we broken? Yes. Are we sinful? Are we struggling? Are we not getting it right? Is God holy and we fall far below that measure and standard? Yes. But the biggest point is the way all that gets healed and fixed is walking with God. God invites us to the table. God invites us to the journey to walk with God so that we can learn what it's like to walk with God and be like God. If you put a curtain between people and God and say, until you're good enough, you're not allowed to even enter into the journey of becoming like God, then how can you become like God? If you erect a huge castle wall around God and say, you got to climb this wall, and you got to be good enough, and you got to be holy enough. And God's inside saying, no, wait a minute. The whole way they do that is through access to me. 
then you've truncated the whole process that God has put in place for people to become more loving and kind, like God. <coughs> Sorry. I've had some <coughs> weather-related <coughs> congestion. Bear with me. The remedy to our brokenness and our ungodlikeness, our ungodliness, is God. This is the whole picture of God and God's heart towards people. God says, yes, you're broken. Yes, you're not like me. Yes, you don't even really realize how dysfunctional you are. So come with me. Come away with me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus said. If you're broken, if you're bruised, if you're hurting, if you're failing, if you're stumbling, if you're falling short, come to me. And I will help you. I'll give you strength. I'll carry you. I'll walk with you. How then can we say at the same time, come to Jesus for help in the journey and say, but first you got to get your stuff together and you got to get cleaned up and you got to repent and you got to do the religious stuff and you got to come to church and give your 10% and you got to do and you got to accept the right beliefs and you got to jump through the hoops. When Jesus and God are the remedy, how can you withhold the remedy in order for people to get good enough for the remedy? There was in one of the, the stories of Jesus. I mean, let me look this up. In one of the stories that Jesus told, let's see if I actually look, had this one. Um, oh, here it is. Yeah. So uh, this is the when Jesus called Levi the tax collector uh, to be one of his followers. Now, just backing up a bit, tax collectors were the lowest of the low to Jewish people. They were Jewish people collecting taxes for Rome. Rome to the Jews was a, an, uh, um, was a usurping government. They were a... <laughs> trying to, I can't think of the right word. Rome had come into God's land, which was supposed to belong to the Jews, taking it over, and Rome was not supposed to be there in the Jews' mind. And on top of that, Rome is charging the Jews taxes to live there. The Jews hated tax collectors because they were not only Jewish, but they had betrayed their Jewish people by, tex by collecting taxes from Rome. And not only that, but as per Roman law, tax collectors could collect any amount of extra they wanted for their own personal um, profit. And they did. There was no amount. There was no limit. That was the exchange. Rome said, hey, you're under our authority. You're under our protection. And you need to collect this amount for us, and you can collect whatever else you want for yourself. And you're protected by us to do it. Jews hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were the lowest. And so here Jesus calls a tax collector. He's a Jewish rabbi, self-proclaimed as he was, supposed to be the holiest of, of holy teachers. And he invites the lowliest of lowly people to be one of his followers. And then Levi invites him on that same day to a feast at his house. And it says, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and other people at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling to his disciples, to Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you hanging out with the, the wrong people? The people that are excluded from God's table should not be invited to your table if you think you're of God. Gotcha. See, Jesus you don't know God because you're inviting the wrong people to your table. And so that can't be the table of God. What does Jesus say? It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, 
but sinners. Hmm. Man, there's no beautiful illustration of what Jesus was about. And there's no beautiful, more better illustration of what the religious leaders were about. And it was all centered around a table, around tabling, around inviting people into your blessing, into the blessing of your relationship with God. How can sick people get well if we deny the great physician? If we deny them access to the great physician, if we say, not at my church, those people are not welcome at my church. Those people are not welcomed by God. And yet God says, who do you think you are? Who are you? How did you get in? And you've gotten in and now you're closing the gate in people's faces? You're about to lose your place at the table, not them. And Jesus also said in another instance, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. He said that to the religious leaders. The people you think are the most on the outs with God are actually cl way closer than you because you think there is an in and an out because you think some people are good enough to be in God's presence and some are not. If your religion is about picking and choosing who's good enough to be around, to come to, to your church, you've got the wrong religion and you don't know the real God. The real God, God is about a heart to draw all people through relationship with him and her into healing and wholeness. How can you deny the very remedy that would heal the world because the world is too broken? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if you went to a doctor with a broken arm and they said, well, when your arm heals up enough, then I'll fix it. When your cancer gets better, then I might do some treatments. That's a bad doctor. It's not a doctor at all. What kind of doctor is God who withholds the very remedy that could heal us because we're not good enough for it? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. So what about sin? What about God's righteousness and wrath? What about heaven and hell? I've done a particular podcast called What About Heaven and Hell? <laughs> you can check that out. I won't go into length, but like, if sin is anything, it's about any system that allows us to hate others and cast them away from God's presence. It's a system that allows us to not love people as we should, and it's a system that teaches us to create barriers between God and others. And to imagine that we are on the inside of that barrier and others are on the outside. And what God is actually saying, and in one of the, par the table parables Jesus said, he said, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. What he's saying is, you who think you're on the inside of this wall you've erected between God and others, you're actually on the outside of that wall and the people you think are outside are in. It's flipped. The whole thing is flipped. When you create barriers between God and others due to some standard of personal holiness or morality you put yourself on the outside but the, the more dire problem is you make other people think they're not good enough for God too you close the gate in their face and yours not just theirs any attempt to erect a barrier between people and God in its most dire situation puts everybody 
on the outside. In, in the practical application, once we start going around trying to, deter, trying to determine who's good enough to be in relationship with God, everybody loses because nobody is good enough. And that's not the point, and that's not the gospel story, the gospel message that Jesus preached. Jesus hung out with the wrong people, with sinners. He called the wrong people to follow him. Tax collectors, fishermen, stinky fishermen and shepherds. And because there are, is no such thing as a wrong person in God's view. In a sense, we're all broken. If sin is anything, it's just about our brokenness. But what is breaking us is our lack of proximity to God. And so the remedy is proximity to God. And so if that's the remedy, then that's it. There's no hoops we need to jump through. We don't need to say a sinner's prayer. If, this, if the sinner's prayer is anything, it is just recognizing the state that we're in, that we need God. Like Anybody who recognizes that they need God, God is right there embracing them. I don't believe God walks separate from any person. I don't believe that's even possible. God, who is the life in all things, is in and with all things. And so the minute anybody decides they want to try and engage in a relationship with God, guess what? God is there. <clears throat> it's interesting that metaphor of the rock about Jesus, or the metaphor of the rock where water flowed, <clears throat> when it's talked, when it's referenced in the New Testament to Jesus, it talks about it as this rock and this water that moved around and followed the people. I don't know if the rock followed the people, but it was imagined as the stream that began and flowed and just like flowed after the people. And like, there's another, I think it's in the Psalms, that talks about streams in the desert. There is also a verse about God being for us like a wellspring inside us, springing up to life. Like, um, it's this idea that God's everywhere, flowing everywhere to everyone. All we need to do is simply turn. Like the invitation is open to everyone. And turning doesn't mean we get anything right or do anything better. It means that we just begin to say, God, I think you're really here with me, and I think you really want to walk with me, and I want to try to do that. In our hearts, if we decide to try and be in relationship with God, there is nothing else standing in the way. And if people put things up and erect barriers to someone who's in their heart trying to walk with God, God says that's like putting a mill, uh, God, or sorry, God said that's like preventing a little child coming to him. And he said, you had better watch out if you prevent people from coming to me. If you put heavy burdens on people, he said that of the Pharisees too, he said, you, you put heavy burdens on people trying to come to God. What makes God the most upset, what made Jesus the most upset, was religious people putting stringent barriers between others and God. Anyone trying to come to God should have no barriers. The only barrier in coming to God is our desire. That's it. There's nothing you need to get right. Like, the only thing you need to get right is wanting to walk with God. And once you get that right, everything else just flows as we walk with God. All we should be doing if we know God is inviting people to know God and saying, I don't care who you are, where you are, what you're doing, what you've done. I will walk with you. If you want to know God and you want to walk with me as I know God, my table is open to you. My table is big. Everyone is invited.
I was reminded of a song, an old hymn. Forgive my singing. <laughs> I'm not the best singer, but I like this hymn. It's an old-timey hymn. It's called, Is There Room at the Cross? There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. <laughs> Change the word cross to table. They're both made out of wood. There's, that's, that's some minor, some minor step-ups in that song, which I struggled with, sorry. But I was thinking about that song. I was thinking about that sentiment like, Jesus' cross is just the same as Jesus' table. Jesus invites us into the thing that gives life. And the cross represents, of course, leaving things behind, putting things to death, and coming back to, to life. That's why it's also this whole process of following Jesus is imagined as death, burial, and resurrection. Like, there is a process to becoming a different person, to being transformed. Like, the whole gospel message is God saying, come to me, and I'll change your life. I'll make it better. Like, I'll transform you. It'll be like you've died to your old self. You've put that in the grave, like a seed in the ground, and it's blossomed and bloomed into something so much better, more beautiful, and good. And you can't do it. I can do it, and I will do it for you. And there's nothing you have to do but come to me. The church has imagined that coming in so many harmful ways. Put so many barriers to it. We formalized it and made it into rituals and sacraments and made a bunch of loopholes or a bunch of hoops to jump through. And I guess we, we tend to create loopholes for ourselves and walls for others. Oh, yeah, I'm a sinner too, but I, I, God, that's okay. I've done all the right stuff. But you, on the other hand, have not done anything. There's nothing to do, people. There's no barrier to coming to God other than our choice. Look at the prodigal son story, the parable that Jesus told. He's like, you know, I, he told that story. He said, this is what the father is like. The prodigal son, if you don't know the story, I'll tell it briefly. <clears throat> this, is another good, this is another good banquet and table metaphor. The prodigal son, this dad had two, two sons, the older and younger. The younger got, they had, had a farm. They were, he was wealthy. They helped work on the farm. The younger son was like, I'm done with this. I'm tired of slaving away and I want my inheritance and I want it now and I want to go. I want to go live life. So the dad's like, okay, you know what? It's your life. I'd rather you stay, but fine. You want to go sow your wild oats? Here you go. The, the son, the younger son goes, squanders all the money on wild living, ends up <clears throat> feeding pigs in a, on a farm, which if you don't know, in, in the Jewish mind, pigs were un clean and unholy. They weren't supposed to even touch pigs. And this kid is like not only feeding, tending pigs in the muck with them, but he's eating their food because he's so hungry because he's making so little. And then he runs back. <clears throat> the father sees him, runs, runs to this kid, gives him a big old hug, embraces him, puts new clothes on him, puts a ring on his finger, which is a symbol of sonship and a symbol of acceptance. <clears throat> throws a huge banquet, a huge party for him. He's so happy. There is nothing, there is no hint of the... And the son actually comes and says, Hey, I know I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Just, you know, your servants have it pretty good. Just make me a servant. 
And the dad's like, nothing doing. There's no hint of any rebuke on what the son has been and what the son has done and how the son has squandered half their, their wealth of the family. He's like, get in here. We're, we're slaughtering the best. We're getting the best food. We're having a banquet and a party. You know what the older son does? This story is really about the older son. The older son comes in and says, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. This, my brother screwed everything up. He did everything wrong. And you're throwing a banquet for him. You've never even thrown a little party for me and my friends. I can't believe it. I've done everything right. I've worked my butt off. I can't believe this. I am, I'm so mad. I'm, uh. And the father comes out and says, Dude, you have everything that's mine now is yours. You've got everything. Like nobody's keeping you from the banquet. It's all yours. You're keeping yourself from it because you're so rigid and so legalistic and you think it's about doing the duty. And you don't know how to celebrate and love. We, the church, we are that older son. We are the ones saying, I can't believe God would love that person. I can't believe that that person could come to church. No, that person, no. I can't believe, that is not right. I have been good. I have kept the rules. I read my Bible. I have the strictest moral code. I'm at church every Sunday. <clears throat> and some person, he doesn't even go to church and God's going to favor him. God's going to invite him. No, 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 no. <laughs> Can you imagine the temper tantrum that we throw? <clears throat> and God, the Father, Jesus paints that picture of God's like, I don't care. I don't, you know, everything that you have was given to, to you by me. Not because you worked for it. You don't earn it because you're my son and he's my son. You think I'm going to disown him? He's my son. I don't care what he's done. I don't care. He's my son. If he wants to come back, darn it, he's coming back. <clears throat> And not with reprimand and correction. I'm throwing a party. This relationship is on. I'm so glad he's back. I'm so glad you're back. That's how God responds to people. No matter where you've been, what you've done, it doesn't matter. There's nothing you got to do. There's no barrier except you choosing to walk with God. And walking with God is the point. It's not only what heals us, it's what makes life good and rich. Is there room at the table? What kind of table are you setting? What kind of a table have you imagined that God has set for you and that God is for you and that God is for others? I know I've read the Bible hundreds of times. I know a lot of the parables Jesus tells. I know how many ways we can take it and how many wrong ways. I know how exclusionary we can be. But I also know as a mystic, as someone who has come into close contact with the heart of God, I can tell you how surprised, how surprised I've been by the goodness and the love of God for all people. God does not care if you're a Buddhist. I want to I let you in on this secret. God doesn't care if you're gay. God doesn't care if you're straight. God doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. God doesn't care if you're a Buddhist. God doesn't care if you're Hindu. God doesn't care if you're homeless or wealthy. God doesn't care if you're the most religious person or the least. You're his son. You're his daughter. And damn it. That's all that matters. I can tell you 
I'm trying not to cry. I can tell you it grieves God's heart to see his people, the people that claim to know him most, represent him the least loving. Represent a God that is exclusionary, that is turning people away because they're not good enough. And that's just not the case. God welcomes everybody in. And if we're not welcoming everybody in, we don't know the heart of God. God does not turn in. God is out there like the shepherd that Jesus, the parable Jesus told of the night. God is out there chasing down the lost people, trying to bring them in and call them in and get them to come in. And when they come in, if we turn them away, what do you think that puts us with God? God's, God's going through hell and high water to woo and draw people into intimate relationship with him and her because he loves all his kids. And, and then they come into what they think are God's people, and God's people are like, get out of here. God doesn't want you. You're not good enough. You make me sick. I'm sorry. I was in a church, my, Chris, my wife and I were... Um, in between churches and visiting churches. And we visited a church that was actually the closest church to our house. We sat in there, listened to a sermon. The preacher was preaching on homosexuality. The lady right in front of us, when he was preaching about that, said, they make me sick. And that made me sick. And I'm not here to judge or condemn people, but I can tell you the heart of God. God is not sickened by our brokenness. God is burdened by our brokenness. God has, com God has compassion and grace for our brokenness. He knows that it's more than we can bear and that we need to come to him and her for healing, to be lifted up. We can't do it. If your religion is anything about anything you've done and that, and that means you've earned something and deserve something and deserve a place with God, that's not the religion of Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is still turning over tables today. And church, and church after church after church across this country and in the world. Jesus is in there trying to turn around the system we've created of inside and out. This insider's club. Jesus is not happy with how the church has positioned itself in the world as some ivory tower of holiness of the right people and the good people in opposition to all the wrong people. Jesus is still turning over tables today and Jesus is still saying, get your table in order. You need to be mindful of the kind of table you're setting your table is not in a church in isolation from all the wrong people. Your table is meant to be set in a desert. And your cup of blessing is meant to overflow to your enemies. And you are not meant to have enemies anyway. And you're not meant to live in isolation in your holy goodness and your separateness from the suffering and the brokenness of people. We are a sent people. We are a people that are meant to be the church going out. Meaning we are meant to be in love with God and be going out to show the love of God to every single person. There is no one too broken and too lost and too unworthy. That's not even the right way to look at it. We need to be more mindful of the table we're setting.
And don't turn this around and think, oh, so I'm supposed to go hang out with people because they're so bad and I'm so good. <laughs> if you go that way and with condescension and condemnation, you're still setting the wrong table. You have been brought in by God's good grace and love. And that is who you are to be for others. You are to be the essence and the fragrance of God's love for others. God's all-embracing, all-inclusive love. You are to walk through this world open-hearted, open-armed. And if anyone says, hey, I want to know more about this God, you dare not say, well, how are you living? You better get some things right first. You better say, awesome, I'm here. I'll walk with you. And you know what? It's not our job to tell people what they need to change in their lives. We invite them to God, and God alone tells people how they need to change. And that's it. That's the paradigm. God walking with people transforms people. We are just the vessels. We are just the conduit. And we should just be about loving people and let God take care of the rest. And there is no one who doesn't need the love of God. And so there is no one who doesn't need us to come alongside and walk with them and love them. I don't care what you think about sin and who you think is the most sinful and what sins you think are the worst or the best. Morning. That is not your concern and it's not your focus. Your focus is being the love of God to people so they can know how much God loves them. You are not the gatekeepers. There is no gate. If there's a gate in your religion, that's a problem. <laughs> Jesus, you know what? Jesus said, I am the gate. You know what he said? He, he was saying, you don't decide. And you know what else he said? If I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to me. What kind of gate is Jesus? Wide open to everyone. The reason that Jesus is the gate is because he's saying, you don't decide who I accept. I accepted you, darn it, and you better believe I'll accept anyone because I accepted you. And if you don't understand that and you don't have the humility to understand how much of a gift it was to you, then you don't understand much about God at all. I'm not that kind of gate. I'm not the kind of gate that locks and latches and closes. I'm a wide open gate. Always. Jesus is the gate. It means we're not the gate. It means we have no business trying to figure out who's good enough. Jesus has already declared everyone is good enough to come and walk with the Father. It's the only way, it's the only way any of us will get healed. We need to be teaching people how to walk with God. That's it. We don't need to be judging people's walk, trying to figure it out. As I started with that temple metaphor, every person's relationship with God is personal. It's inside them. It's, they know how God speaks to them. And that's, that's the kind of oneness Jesus talked about. That's the goal. You can't see inside that inner sanctuary. It's not your place to try to peer in. You know what happened if the wrong person went into the inner sanctuary? They died. They were struck down. <laughs> Even if the high priest went in on the wrong day or did the wrong thing on the one day he was allowed, he could die. They tied a rope around the high priest's leg in case he died in the Holy of Holies. That's how you should imagine it. You start meddling in the Holy of Holies of someone else's relationship with God, you should imagine you will be struck dead. 
I don't mean that literally. I just mean that's the kind of, of attitude you should have. It's not your business to go into someone else's holy of holies and judge their relationship with God. It's your job to draw them in to a relationship with God. That's it. You are meant to be the God colors and the God flavors in the world. You are meant to make God so appealing and so beautiful and attractive to people that they come in droves. Do everything you can to make God as attractive as you can so that people will come to walk with God because how they see you walking with God, that is the only thing you're supposed to be about. If you know God, if you truly know God, and you understand who God is and how God calls people and draws people, then you will do the same. And that is the heart of God. You are to be someone drawing people to God and saying, I don't care who you are, what you've done, where you're at. I will, if you want to walk with God, I'll show you how. You walk with me. I don't care how dirty, messed up you are. I don't care. I don't care. I don't, your sins, it doesn't matter. You're broken. That's why you need to come and walk with God. Because I'm broken too. Um, there was a, another t- table story. I guess I'll end with this because I, I know I need to wrap it up. There was a... Oh, I think it was when the pro- there was a prostitute that came in. Jesus was at the table with, I think, one of the Pharisees. One of the religious leaders. I might have been Nicodemus, but I don't know. Um, prostitute comes in. I mean, again, prostitutes are just the worst in the Jewish mind. They violated all the laws. They should be stoned, you know. That's their view. Um, So this prostitute comes in and starts weeping on Jesus' feet and cleaning his feet with her hair. And then he anoints, she anoints his feet with expensive perfume that costs a whole year. Can you imagine a whole year's salary? If you make 30000 a year, can you imagine a perfume that expensive? And she just pours. And and in in his heart, this religious leader says, if Jesus was truly a rabbi, truly a prophet, he'd know the kind of woman that is touching him right now. You know what Jesus says to this religious leader? He's like, tell me. He tells a story, but basically he says, who do you think is the most grateful? The one who's forgiven the bigger debt or the smaller debt? And the religious leader's like, well, of course, the bigger debt. Jesus is like, yes. 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 This woman has, yeah, this woman has a lot of brokenness. But that's why she loves God so much. Has God not done so much in your life that you don't understand God's ability to heal broken people? Is God just a side note in your life and you earned it and you deserved it and you got it and you did all the work and you worked hard? Are you the older son in the parable? Are you the lost and broken and hurting younger son who knows they don't deserve it and never could and still gets it anyway? Who are you at the table? Whose table is it? God's table. The table God truly sets in our hearts is an outflowing and an outpouring towards everyone without exception. What kind of table are you setting for yourself and for God and for others. Is there room at the table? (sighs) That's something for you to ask yourself. Only you can know. Only you can judge that. Only you and God. And I'm telling you to think about it and consider the story of God that you're living in and living out of. 
and presenting to others. Ah, I appreciate you guys listening. I truly do love you all, and I want you all to know that God is for you. God is with you. Even when you're not thinking or trying to walk with God, God still walks with you. I know that. I hope you know it too. Thank you for listening, for paying attention and joining me. I I hope if you're a devoutly religious person, I hope this challenges you to think about your stance in the world as a God-bearer, as, as someone who claims to be one who knows God. And if you don't know God, I hope that you know that God wants to know you, wants to walk with you, and is already, but that it can make a huge difference when you decide to start walking with God. God can then lead you to good things and good places, and God wants to, and there's nothing you need to do to earn it or get right. Getting right, if it is anything, it just means turning and letting God begin to have some space in your life to speak to you and to lead you to good things. That's God's heart. This has been the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. Um, I, <laughs> I love all of you, and I really hope that you understand God's heart for you. I hope that changes your life. All right, bye.